This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for January 6, 2023. Happy New Year. I'm Sarah Crespi. Please be sure to take our survey, our podcast survey, when you have a chance. You can see it as a pop-up at science.org slash podcast, or you can find a link in the show notes. We're starting off the new year with producer Kevin McLean and freelance science journalist Sofia Muccino. They discuss a controversial dam in the Brazilian Amazon and how indigenous peoples and researchers are trying to monitor its impact. After that, I speak with researcher Elijah Kobe about the many wonders of mitochondria. His team took advantage of the fact that our mitochondria are almost exclusively inherited from our mothers to perform a maternal mitochondrial transfer from moms into kids. The kids had a mitochondrial genome deletion. This was a proof of principle paper they recently published in Science Translational Medicine. The Belamonte Dam in the Brazilian Amazon is one of the largest hydroelectric power complexes in the world. It's been surrounded by controversy since it was first proposed decades ago because of its impact on the ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. One of these communities, the Juruna, an indigenous group in the region, has seen fisheries dwindle, water levels drop, and species disappear. Actually, they haven't just seen this happen, they've measured it. The Juruna teamed up with scientists years ago and have been a driving force in the research efforts to quantify the ecological effects of Belamonte. Freelance journalist and former science news intern Sofia Muccino visited the region back in September to meet the Jaruna researchers and see some of their ongoing work. Sofia, welcome back to the Science Podcast. So nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Belamonte has had a lot of attention on it from the very beginning, but for listeners who aren't as familiar with it, could you just maybe walk through a little bit of the history of the dam? So Belamonte is a project that goes back to the Brazilian dictatorship. First plans to build this uh, dam started around 75, but it didn't happen because the indigenous communities protested a lot and there was also a lack of investment. So in the 2000s, after major electricity blackouts in the country, President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who is now our current re-elected president again, Push for the project. The project got the green light to go ahead, despite international opposition and despite environmentalists and scientists saying they should not do it. And 2016, the dam was built 
and the river was flood and operations were fully going on in 2019. How familiar were you with Belamonte before you visited this area? So it was not the first time I've been in this region. I was in the region, the same region one year before for another story that I published with Science. It was about the challenges of taking the COVID vaccine to remote communities along the Amazon basin area. So I've been in Daltamira, which is the closest city to where the the power plant is. And I've been to other communities in, not in the Shingu River, but in other small rivers in the area. So the drama was not new to me. I've been in touch with people that have been affected before. So you've got the Belmonte Dam on the Shingu River, and that is controlling the flow that goes to the region where the Juruna live. Is that right? Yes. The main dam of the hydro power plant complex called Belo Monte blocks the Shingu River and diverts 80% of the water. The part of the river that is after this dam is where the Juruna people live. It's a 130 kilometers river stretch called the Big Bend because of its shape. It's a huge curve. And this whole stretch had the volume of water drastically reduced because of the dam. Seasonal flooding is a big part of the ecosystem in this area. Why is that so important? So half of the year, the Shingu has high waters and the other half of the year, it has very low waters. And this change in the rhythm of the water shapes the landscape and also all the species that evolved through millennia in that space. So when the river is full during the rainy season, the Shingu waters, they advance over these islands and the river margins in flooded forests. These are forests that are adapted to be on the water. And the local species rely on this. So several species of fishes and turtles, they depend on this forest to be flooded, to go there and breed, to go there and find uh, food. Many of the fish, like the pacu, which is a very important species for the juruna, they are vegetarian. So they eat fruits that fall from the trees in the water when these forests are flooded. Can you talk a little bit more about what the relationship is with the Juruna and with the ecosystem? Why, why are they doing this sort of monitoring that they're doing now? I think it's important to understand that the Shingu is much more than just a river to the Juruna. The Shingu provides them water, food, leisure, transportation, and much more. The Juruna used to say that they have canoes instead of feet. Like very small children learn how to swim. Uh, at very early ages, and they fish, like five-year-old kids are already fishing for their community, for themselves. It's amazing how this relationship is so close for them with the river. When you were there, you were um, you saw some of the research work that they're, they're doing. They're uh, catching fish, measuring them, weighing what's caught. What's the motivation behind doing all of that? So because the river is such an important thing for the Juruna, even before the river was contained by the dam, they knew that this project would affect the rhythm in the river and would affect the fish species in their lives. So back in 2013, they looked to make contact with researchers in the region and they started this partnership. It's an informal partnership to monitor the impacts of the river. And of course, to see what change, you have to start before it changes. So 2013, they start measuring all the fish they caught in the, the indigenous villages, identifying the species, 
waiting the fish to keep a record. They've been doing this since, so they can see how the fish abundance has dropped, how some species that they used to see before are becoming more scarce, how the fish that they eat more, like the pacu, is becoming smaller, mostly because the fish doesn't have enough food and doesn't have enough space, and they lost their breeding sites, the places where they used to go every year to reproduce. What are they doing with that information? What has happened so far with, uh, with the data that they've collected? So right now, they've been using this data in judicial processes to ask for reparation because they're losing their main income and their food. And they also uh, sending this information to the Brazilian Environmental Agency to ask for the dam company to change the water regime. So they had proposed a new plan, a new water regime that would save some of the spots in the river where fish goes seasonally to reproduce and to feed. Because under the current regime of water, these places are not being flooded anymore. So they want to change the amount of water that is being released by the dam to save these places. Zooming out a little bit, who were some of the people that you met when you were on the reporting trip? So I spent around 10 days in the community with the Juruna. It was like we paddled 100 kilometers in canoes to arrive there. And we stopped all the way along the river, sleeping in hammocks in the forest with the Juruna and researchers. So there were geologists, biologists, like ichthyologists, and different members of the Juruna community. Their chief was there. And some of the Juruna who are uh, directly involved, hands-on on this monitoring project. Yeah, we had a very intense days living together, eating together, paddling. Yeah, what sort of stood out to you? I mean, it's been months now, but what hangs in your head as some of the important moments of this reporting trip? Zemari Island is uh, an island that used to be flooded every year and the fish would go there to breed but it's not flooding anymore because there is not enough water in the river. And just by getting out of the boat in the island, you could already see small juvenile fish dead on the margins. And the children believe that's because there is not enough water, so the, the fish would go there and spawn, but there are daily changes in the level of water, so the fish end up dying. And you could see all these fruits on the floor, and there was one member of the community called Junior that he got very emotional. He started crying, showing me the fruits on the floor. He said, this fruit's dry on the floor now. It shouldn't be like that. It should be food for the fish. But because there is no water anymore, the fish is not feeding. And this is like, this is painful for them. This affects every aspect of their lives. Everything's connected. And the Juruna have this view. They know that the changes in the water rhythm will affect the fish, will affect their lives. It's, it cannot just plant a river. That's one thing that one of the scientists told me that stuck to my head. And I think yeah, it's true. And from what you learned, do you feel like there is hope for them to make some of the changes that they've proposed? I think hope. We always have hope. The last one to die, we say in Portuguese. But the scientists that I spoke with are very skeptical. They keep doing it. They're pushing for change. But given the whole history of fights against the dam and how things had turned out until today, it's very improbable. 
But the Juruna are very hopeful, especially because we had this change in govern now. And the Juruna hope that things will change because Lula has been talking during his campaign that he's going to create an indigenous ministry. He's going to take more attention to environmental issues. So the Juruna are hopeful that they will have more space for dialogue with this new government. Yeah, you mentioned before, I think, that Lula is the new president-elect, but he he has his own history with the Belamonte project, right? Yes. It was under his government that the Belamonte got the green sign to happen. And even recently, he gave an interview to a French media saying that he would do Belamonte all over again. So it's not clear yet how he's going to act regarding to this issue. Thank you so much for joining us, Sofia. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Sofia Mucinho is a freelance science journalist. Her story was produced with support from the Rainforest Journalism Fund in partnership with the Pulitzer Center. You can read it in this week's issue of Science. Stay tuned for my chat with Alad Jacoby. He's an expert in pediatric hematology and oncology at Sheba Medical Center and Tel Aviv University. We're going to talk about moving mitochondria from mothers to children. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. The powerhouses of our cells, our mitochondria, have their own little genomes. This mitochondrial DNA has been used many different ways in science, for example, to trace evolutionary history, construct phylogenetic trees that help us understand the relationship of species. We can do these things because the mitochondrial DNA changes at a much different rate than the DNA in the nucleus. One important thing we definitely need to talk about for this show is that our mitochondrial DNA only comes from our mothers. It gets passed down maternally. And when we think about the function of mitochondrial DNA, it's a lot like the DNA in the nucleus. It's transcribed and translated to make proteins needed for the function of the mitochondria. When something goes wrong, like there are missing parts of the mitochondrial genome, big problems can arise. This week, we have Alad Jacoby. He and his colleagues published a paper recently in Science Translational Medicine on an attempt to fix mitochondrial DNA deletions by bringing in some of mom's mitochondria. Hi, Alad. Hi, good evening. This is a really, I really wanted to kind of bring in all the different things that mitochondria are famous for in my introduction, but getting into the specifics of mitochondria-associated disease states, like what happens when you have a major deletion in your mitochondrial DNA? What are the effects on a person? So this is a very complex question to answer. I don't think we can actually live with absence of parts of our mitochondria completely. And what we see in patients is that they have actually a state called heteroplasmy in which some of their mitochondria have normal mitochondrial DNA and some have deletions in the mitochondrial DNA. And there is just enough for them to keep up with a certain pace in life, but not enough. Yeah, there's a lot of consequences to not having the full complement of mitochondria in working order. 
Right, because as you introduced it, it's the energy source of the cell. So the cell lacks a major part of its energy source, and it might fail in different circumstances. You did work with six patients for the study. What were their complaints? Yeah, so these are six patients of the very rare diseases. They're under the basket of mitochondrial deletion syndromes. And the two most common, which both are rare, are Pearson syndrome, which is a pediatric disease, manifests very early in childhood with um, bone marrow failure, mostly severe anemia. And then it progresses to multi-system disease. And the other disease is called Kern-Sayer syndrome, which manifests a little bit later into early school age or early adolescence. And it has more of a systemic manifestation of kidney failure, muscle weakness, neurologic deterioration, etc. And one important factor in choosing your patient population was that this had to be a new mutation or deletion in their mitochondrial DNA. They can't have inherited it, right? Right. So both these syndromes are not inherited. So there's an event that happens somewhere in the development of the fertilized egg or before that, that causes this deletion in the mitochondrial DNA. We don't know exactly when it happens, but it's not inherited. So as you said, the mitochondria are always inherited from the mother. And in this case, we had to confirm the molecular diagnosis of the patients and to make sure that their mothers are intact. What you were able to do in a very general sense was take mitochondrial DNA from mothers and give it to their children. But let's, let's kind of walk through how you would do that. How did you get mitochondrial DNA out of people? We didn't remove the mitochondrial DNA. We worked on this project in collaboration with a biotech company called Minovia. And they have a technique in which they separate mitochondria, so it's full mitochondria from cells. And we use this platform to enrich matopoietic stem cells, which are the cells that regenerate the bone marrow and all the, the blood cells, the white cells, the lymphocytes, the macrophages, etc. And what we did is actually a form of an autologous bone marrow transplant. So we took hematopoietic stem cells from the patients and we enriched them with mitochondria from their mothers. These are naturally inherited mitochondria, so they're like their normal mitochondria, but we know that they are intact. You were able to separate out the organelles, the mitochondria from the mothers, and then how did they enter into the cells that you harvested from the patients? So surprisingly, this is a naturally occurring event. So we know that cells share organelles among themselves. And we know that mitochondria itself can transfer in states of health and disease between different cells. The trick was just to have it be utilized in a decent amount that you can find some physiologic changes in the cell. When you looked at these patients after the introduction of these rescue mitochondria, where did you find these intact mitochondria? Did they hang out somewhere specific? This is one of the problems in our study because we, we wanted to do this work as safe as possible. And we chose mitochondria from the mothers, which we thought would be the safest for the patients. But we knew that we'll have a major disadvantage that we cannot actually track them in the body. Because they look exactly the same as the ones they already have, right? Right. So what we had, we had surrogate markers so we could measure what is the mitochondrial content per cell in the blood of these patients? What is the ATP production capacity or the energy production capacity of the cells 
in these patients afterwards, which are indirect measures of what we did, but they're not actual tracking of these cells or, the, or these mitochondria. Right. You want to see if you're seeing some improvement in the markers of what mitochondria do. Exactly. Yeah. And did you? Yeah. So we actually saw some improvements. But if I may, before we go to the biochemical changes that we noted, I have to tell you how the first patient behaved because this was the real surprise. We had no idea what to expect. And this child was, he was six or seven years old and he was always coming to clinic on a stroller. He did not have the capacity to walk almost completely. And he just, you know, woke up, had more hours awake during the daytime, had more ability to carry out physical activity that was just remarkable. And we were honestly surprised to see this change in this patient. Yeah, because, I mean, how many mitochondria do we need, right? And how many more can we give somebody? It's just, it's amazing. That's true. And again, so I'm very cautious about this study because it's a very complex population. It's a small number of patients and the procedure is unique. One thing we didn't do is we, you know, we cannot take out the bad mitochondria. So we did not fix the bad mitochondria. We just added some new ones that were intact. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a basic biology question. Do we, what we make new mitochondria when we make new cells, right? So are these, are they going to generate new copies of the good stuff going forward? That's an excellent question. So mitochondria have very strange dynamics because they don't divide exactly as the cell divides in half. And they have events of fusion of several mitochondria together and then separation called fission of the mitochondria. Oh my goodness. So the biology is much more complex. And to be honest, doing this procedure, we still don't understand how this affects these division events. Yeah. But what you do know is you saw improvement from patients, from their caregivers saying things are better in some of these patients. And then you also saw some biochemical changes. Right. So we measured the heteroplasmy, which is the percent of the diseased mitochondria. We saw some changes in some having a lower heteroplasmy. That means a higher percentage of normal mitochondria in the blood. But I cannot claim that this means that this is better health necessarily. What we did saw pretty consistently was an increase in the number of normal mitochondria per cell. So there was increase in the copy numbers of the intact mitochondria in each patient per cell. That wasn't encouraging. How long were you able to see some of the effects? Like how long did you follow the patients for? On this protocol, we followed up to three years and we saw the effects usually happening within a few months. And we saw some stop in the change after a year or two. So there was an improvement in the first year or two but then some stabilization and even some decline in several patients. Did you see any serious side effects during this treatment for your patients? It's a big deal for the patients because we have to harvest hematopoietic cells from them, which is a pretty standard procedure for healthy individuals. But for these patients, it was a bit rough. It caused a lot of electrolyte changes. It caused changes in their acid-based mechanisms, which were all expected, but still severe. It did not end up in any patient being unexpectedly hospitalized, but this was the major event. We are still following these patients long-term for any unexpected side effects as well. 
So what do you think some next steps might be to either working on these kinds of patients with this treatment or maybe expanding it out to different kinds of mitochondrial issues? Like would intervening earlier maybe make a bigger difference? You're pretty much on the spots with all these ideas. You know, this is our patient population and we want to find better solutions for them. We're trying to, along with Minovia, we're trying to start a new protocol using allogeneic mitochondria that come from different donors. This will give an advantage for us, first of all, to get a higher dose of mitochondria in, and second, to be able to track them in the patients and say something about the kinetics of this treatment. And then, of course, if this proves itself, we would love to go and see other mitochondrial diseases. Thank you so much, Alad. Thank you for this interesting interview. Alad Jacoby is an expert in pediatric hematology and oncology at Sheba Medical Center and Tel Aviv University. You can find a link to the Science Translational Medicine paper that we talked about at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. Or better yet, take our audience survey at science.org slash podcast. You'll see a pop-up and an ad on SideRail. If you can't find those, there's always going to be a link in the recent episode descriptions. You can listen to the show on the science website at science.org slash podcast. Or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by me, Sarah Crespi, with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and his publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.